My name is Troy Swanson. I'm the library department chair. Today's event is the big fake out. Why do we fall for fake news? So we're going to talk a little bit about fake news, but we really want to get to kind of the things that happen mentally, psych psychologically, sociologically, philosophically even, behind the scenes of the fake news phenomenon. So let me just read a little intro, then I'll introduce our panelists and we can get the conversation moving. Um, just a little bit from the Pew Research Center um, on journalism and media. In the wake of the 2016 election, everyone from President Obama to Pope Francis has raised concerns about fake news and potential impact on both political life and innocent individuals. Some fake news has been widely shared and so-called Pizzagate stories led a North Carolina man to bring a gun into a popular Washington DC pizza restaurant under the impression that it was hiding a child prostitution ring. According to a new survey by, Pew, by the Pew Research Center, most Americans suspect that made-up news is having an impact. About two and three U.S. adults say fabricated news stories cause a great deal of confusion about the basic facts of current issues and events. This sense is shared widely across incomes, educational levels, partisan affiliations, and most other demographic characteristics. The results come from a survey of 1,002 U.S. adults conducted in December of 2016. Um, that's a, just a short quote from Pew. There's an entire industry that has arisen over the last decade which is competing for your eyeballs online. They're sharing advertisers, trying to get you to click on news stories. Some of these have political goals. Some of them are just about making money off of advertisements. So we want to talk about this idea of why we click, what things um, get our attention, why do things get our attention, how should we understand the information we encounter. So today, we've come together to talk about this. We're going to do this using the lenses of philosophy, sociology, and psychology. Um, so let me do a quick intro of our expert panelists. So to my left is Jeffrey McCauley from sociology. To his left is Laura Lazen Collins from psychology. To her left is Aaron Smith from philosophy. To his left is Mary Barney, also from philosophy. So thank you, panel members, and uh, Thank you for joining us. So um, to start, I'm going to ask Jeffrey, um, see if he can help us think about the function of fake news. I guess to start with, we can think about what is fake news. Uh, fake news is disinformation or misinformation in the production of news designed to elicit outrage, ratings, and really profit. Uh, when thinking about fake news, most of the time it's focused on politics. Uh, maybe you're familiar with the National Enquirer and the sort of uh, that brand of fake news where you hear about the bat boy or whatever that sort of news are. Um, those, don't use, those news stories aren't usually considered within the purview of fake news in general. Um, usually fake news, how we think of it today, is more political in nature, um, I think most of the time. Uh, Troy asked me to, at, to talk a little bit about what the function of fake news is, and I think that there's generally two major functions of fake news. Fake news serves two major purposes. One is to generate revenue. Uh, fake news are often disseminated through websites that have banner advertisements that are designed to get some click-through rate to generate profits for whatever company uh, is producing that fake news. Uh, there are fake news companies that own uh, th that, that portray different news stories. There'll be liberal fake news and conservative fake news, but they're owned by the same company. An example is uh, the Liberal Society and Conservative 101 are two major fake news companies putting out lots of stories, but they're owned by the same company. Uh, they'll tell the same stories, but they'll tell them in very different ways in order to generate profits for the parent company. 
so they don't really exist to keep the population informed. They exist to generate revenue. So one thing to keep in mind here is that over 90% of the media that we consumed uh, are owned by just a handful of companies, Time Warner, Disney, News Corporation, Viacom, Comcast, and CBS. Just these five or six companies control pretty much all of the news uh, that is, or, and all the media that is consumed. So one of the major purposes or functions of fake news is to generate profit. Another major function is to generate headlines and capture attention before fact-checking can be done. If we put out a really provocative statement before there's time to check whether or not that statement's true, that fact can run around and run around and run around um, before it ever gets fixed. A quote from Mark Twain says, a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is putting on its shoes. By the time people try to fix the fake news, it's already out there. Uh, so I have a lot of examples. Um, but I'll just be quick here so our other panelists have time to talk. Um, but one example would be uh, Donald Trump says that he won by the largest margin of electoral college votes ever, um, by 304, 306 electoral votes. And he was immediately corrected and said, well, uh, Barack Obama won, and he had 365. And then Donald Trump said, oh, well, I mean the most Republicans ever. And then he was immediately corrected and said George Bush had 426. So here was a time where the fake news was, was really fact-checked very quickly, but usually it's not fact-checked that quickly. And by the time the news is out there, it goes on and on um, forever. So I have lots of other examples that maybe we can talk about in Q&A, but I want to keep the thing moving here. Yeah, I, I, um, I think that idea of how this news spreads is really one of the things that we're after with this conversation. Like, why, do we, why does a piece of information interact with us in a way that we are compelled to share it, believe it, hang on to it? And I think I'd like to start with our philosophers, if I could, down at the end of the table. Um, in philosophy, the, the study of um, how we know things, how we understand information, roughly, um, is known as epistemology. So I'd like to ask a big question to Mary at the end. Tell us about epistemology and what that means. Hello? Okay. Okay. Um, so when I teach um, my intro to philosophy classes, epistemology takes about three weeks to introduce to students. I'm going to do my best to share it in just a couple of minutes. Um, uh, generally speaking, uh, epistem, uh, the, the prefix means knowledge. Ology, of course, is the study of, and so ep epistemology is the study of knowledge. Uh, historically, we look at, oh, around the 1500s as the time that epistemology became a field of philosophy or a, um, a discipline in philosophy. And uh, what occurred was a philosopher named Descartes, who uh, many of you may have met outside of philosophy in geometry class, um, suggested that we ought to have a process by which we um, distinguish knowledge from other kinds of information. Uh, what is knowledge? What makes it different from, say, opinion or some other sort of belief or a value? Um, and Descartes' answer, um, it's not the only answer that we've been given by philosophers, but Descartes' answer was that absolute certainty um, was required for something to count as knowledge. Uh, absolute certainty might be might be uh, gained through uh, logical analysis or mathematical reasoning. Right, um, pretty much everybody gets four 
when they add two and two together. And if they don't, we think that they are wrong. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, in response to Descartes, this, this notion that um, uh, knowledge requires absolute certainty, um, people responded in two ways, generally. Um, the first group agreed with Descartes that reason is the source of knowledge, that we uh, critically analyze a issue or problem and we come up with a necessary solution. Um, Descartes is, of course, famous for telling us that he thinks, therefore he knows he exists. Yes? Um, I think, therefore I am. I think, therefore I exist. If I'm thinking, then I know with certainty that I am here. And that's a fact that no one can disprove for me, right? Um, or to me. Um, so several philosophers agreed with Descartes. Um, knowledge comes from reason. Um, reason is its source. And then other philosophers came along and said, but wait a minute. Uh, babies, baby humans, are born like blank slates, white paper. Their minds have no information written on them. Um, and in order for them to collect information and to gain what we think of as knowledge, they have to have sense experience. They have to see things and feel things. Batteries, maybe out on that. I'll swap. Okay. Do this one. I'll get a new one. Okay. And touch things. <laughs> uh, and we call them uh, empiricists. They look for empirical evidence of the things that they believe. Um, is that? Is that? I think that's a good foundation okay. to start with because I'm going to ask Aaron to take us then back to the ancient Greeks and to talk about knowledge and how they see the what's the classical conception of knowledge. <clears throat> well, for the ancient Greeks, um, and so we're going back almost 2,000 years prior to Descartes, actually a little bit less than that. And if you've taken a philosophy class, you know that we really like to talk about Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. So j just roll with me for a second. So Plato, you can just imagine just the Greeks were hanging out, and I just imagine them in like a marketplace. You got some olives and some you know, wine, and they're hanging out having a conversation. Grapes. And grapes, yeah. Well, well they liked wine. <laughs> They had a god of wine. Yeah. They didn't have a god of grapes, god of wine. <laughs> All right. Um, and one of the things that they had, they were having this conversation about what constitutes knowledge. And for the Greeks, and I mean, and philosophers still hold on to this today, is that what, what, what constitutes knowledge is a, is a lot smaller set of things that fit into that than what we might think of today. So like, I might say, oh, I'm kind of thirsty. I'd like some coffee. Oh, yeah. I, I'm thirsty, so I have knowledge that I want to drink coffee. For the Greeks, you're like, nope, that doesn't really constitute knowledge. Like, knowledge is more along things like mathematics, Pythagoras' theorem, like big picture stuff that we might study in university. We don't really study whether or not Aaron Smith wants to have a cup of coffee right now. That's not a matter of knowledge. So for Plato, they started out like you can, we can go back to some of Plato's dialogues and you get these like very first conversations about like what constitutes knowledge. And knowledge is real a, a binary. That means it's either like true or false. Yep, knowledge is true or knowledge is false and there's no middle ground. And then quickly in the discussions, then you have people like asking Socrates questions and they're like, oh yeah, wait a second, there seems to be a middle ground because I'm confused. I don't know nothing and I have something, oh, I'm confused. So they quickly figure out that there's this middle ground between knowledge, which is called opinion. And we might have opinions, and then they even make it more complicated by saying, okay, now we have knowledge and no knowledge, and then in between that are 
uh, guesses where I might just make a lucky guess, and then I may have a correct opinion where like, I'm pretty sure about something, but I can't exactly explain why. And so you have these sort of like, okay, you have knowledge over here and lack of knowledge and in between it's this fuzzy bit of opinion and then how do we get opinion to knowledge and, and that was just kind of the difficult question that people kind of stuck with for 1500 years until we got to what uh, Professor Barney just talked about. But then after that, like, so philosophers, we're still kind of stuck on the Greeks. <laughs> we're still stuck on the Greeks, of course we are. But today we've kind of, uh, post this philosopher named David Hume, we have this idea of called a justified true belief. Because in a way, like we think of like what is knowledge today, we, we, we've given up this idea of absolute certainty in the way that Descartes talked about. It. It's just impossible if your standard is absolute certainty that 100% we know you'll bet your soul on it, you can't possibly be wrong. The only thing maybe that we know for sure that fits that is that we are existing, which is that's not a lot of knowledge. So if we want to say like what constitutes knowledge, philosophers today and most of us agree with this idea of justified true belief, which it means that I have a true belief. It's so if I have knowledge, I am justified in it. I have like reasons for it. I can back it up. I can give an explanation. It's actually true, right? It's true. It's not false, and it's a belief I have. It's not. I don't get to say I have knowledge if I don't actually believe it. <laughs> so it has to be justified. It has to be true, and it's a belief. And this gets us around a lot of the problems of just like trying to have like a huge bar to cross for knowledge of saying like, oh, you have to have absolute certainty because could I be, could today, could I believe that uh, our, you know, our solar system like works in a certain way because that's based upon my knowledge of physics and I'm correct in that. It's justified, it's true, and I believe. And then 500 years from now, we could say, ooh, you know what, actually we were totally existing in a computer and future people might have uh, a different understanding of what is reality than I have today. But I'm, I have true knowledge of this because it's justified, it's true, and it's a belief I have. And obviously it gets more complicated and if you've taken a philosophy class, you can figure that out. But we're still just like, that's what we have today. Like what constitutes knowledge? It's a small set, a lot smaller. I, don't, I wouldn't say I have knowledge that I have coffee, like I want coffee. I might have knowledge that there is coffee in this coffee cup because uh, I have a justified true belief that I put coffee in this coffee cup. And I could turn out to be mistaken about that, but I have justified true belief that. I don't have a justified true belief that I want coffee because that's just really a matter of opinion. It, I love the the kind of three parts <laughs> with the that it's you know it's got to be true it's got to be justified and I have like what what is the idea I think th a thing that we can think about is like how do I justify like what is my justification so like a, a great example I heard that relates to this is like if I wanted to know what is the capital of the state of Iowa maybe I don't know what the capital of the state of Iowa is so I put a map up of the state of Iowa and I throw a dart at it and maybe I hit Des Moines which is the state of the capital of the state of Iowa now I could say Des Moines is the capital of the state of Iowa, but with my knowledge of how darts work in randomness, how justified am I in saying that, right? Maybe I could have closed my eyes and accidentally hit Davenport, then I say, well, Davenport is the capital of Iowa, is that correct, right? So we can say what is the thing that we use to make the justification becomes part of that definition, which I think is really um, kind of fantastic. So, so then I wanna push Mary a little bit more, take us even further thinking about positivism, and related ideas down that road. So we take justified true belief, we had Descartes, bring us to the modern times. Okay, um, so I, I would say maybe the late 1700s, early 1800s, um, this notion of uh, positive comes, up, positivism, sorry, comes up in uh, philosophy. And uh, positivism is the suggestion that 
the way we determine the truth of something or the way we find out facts, determine facts from opinions, is through the scientific method. So, um, namely, we make uh, positive claims about physical reality or about um, uh, the material world around us, and then we can test those claims using the scientific method um, and determine whether or not they actually explain the world or give us reliable information about the world. Um, uh, the philosopher who brought us that idea was reacting um, to the history of the production of knowledge. And he, he looked back and he saw that uh, originally human beings had tried to, uh, tried to explain things that they did not understand using mythology or using religion or um, a combination of the two. And when those explanations kind of ran their course, Philosophers came along and they said, well, we can, we can reach conclusions about objective reality by examining that reality itself and then trying to explain that reality. And so that's what we call metaphysics in philosophy. Um, and eventually it turned out that uh, science was able to answer some of these questions better than metaphysicians, or perhaps not better, but with more evidence behind them that makes sense. And, um, and in the positivist tradition, uh, the belief was that if you could test your claim, right, um, for instance, helium is less dense than the air around us, right? We, we could test that claim. And I bet most of you tested it as a child um, by carrying around a balloon or something. Um, <laughs> and, and in testing those claims, we can determine the, the truth of them that helium is, in fact, less dense than the, the air around us, for example. That, I think that's that about, that, that's that about it. Um, eventually, um, philosophers took that uh, uh, belief in positivism and decided that then what philosophy could do, since it was um, not really the same as science, is that we could use logic um, and uh, other critical reasoning to analyze the concepts uh, provided by science and the methodology provided by science, and we could try to help explain those concepts and that methodology um, in the best way possible. Um, and that's logical positivism. So, yes. I, I mean, I think the the step, the next step to take then is we've, I mean, I think all of us, once you've been in college long enough and you've clunked around with some ideas, I think we can figure out that science isn't quite enough to make meaning. Like we can do experiments and we can see outcomes, but is that good, is that bad? How do we handle what we learn? And so I think I'd like to then turn to Aaron again to talk about that kind of social side. How do we construct knowledge socially? And that will open us up to our sociologists at the table also. So go ahead, Aaron, and then um, chime in if you <laughs> feel the need. Right. So um, once we have this idea that like science gives us truth, we like a lot of philosophers and social scientists and, and other people started, of course, questioning this because we're academics and we ask the question why, and we think like, wow, why why is that true? 
And so I just want to take a, a quick detour back to ancient Greece. And one of the things that Plato did was like they were, uh, Plato and Socrates and a lot of the Greeks were really concerned about this problem of relativism, is that if we don't have knowledge and truth, then we're left in this place where truth is relative to us. Like I get to have my own truth and you know everyone else has their own truth. And if there's no such thing as objective truth, then like everything is kind of meaningless. Like, you know, there's a Lego movie song, like everything is awesome. Well, if you think about it, you're like, Every, if everything is awesome, that literally means everything is awesome, and then it's kind of meaningless if everything is awesome. So that's a sort of like boogeyman in the closet, like if you have relativism or the Lego movie song, whichever you want to think of it. And so <laughs> in the 1920s, when you started having people like pushing this idea of like science gives us truth, then people started challenging that. But the scary side is, is if, you, if we lose objective truth in science, does that really mean on the other side that we have to accept this world of relativism where everything is awesome? And the answer that a lot of people <laughs> said is no, um, because there's a, there's a middle ground there in between those, which is this idea of like social construction of knowledge. Like we might talk about scientific facts, and there's things that we can agree on, and which is like that we all might see a world around us. It's like there's a coffee cup here or a microphone here. But then there's other things that seem to be facts and we might want to have knowledge about, but yet they're, they're, they're social constructed, meaning that they're literally made, made by our society. So for example, think of the concept of race. I mean, race is really kind of, it's not, like I can't, yeah, I'm like, can't cut myself open and find race and races. I mean, we like put races on the skin, but not really. It's like, how do we mark race? And race is just kind of a new idea. But yet, if you deny that race is meaningful in the United States today, I, I can't do that. I'm a white person. I have a lot of white privilege. <laughs> like you would laugh at me if I said well, race doesn't matter because I, I would sound like an entitled white male. But yet on the <laughs> other hand, if I say that race isn't real, it's just like socially constructed. I mean, on one hand, it is real because it affects all of us and it affects people of color more than me because I'm white, but it affects me because I have white privilege, but not in negative ways. But so race is real, but yet it's not real. It's, but yet it's knowledge. We can have knowledge about it and talk about it. So we would say that's an example of something that's socially constructed. Another example would be like money. Like there's no value in money. Money is just a piece of paper with ink on it, but yet we would say we would attribute like that it has knowledge. We have n this knowledge that it has value. And that what is that value? Well, it's not in the dollar bill. It's not anywhere else. Socially <coughs> constructed. And there's all sorts of things if you really start paying attention to this that, that are socially constructed. And this isn't just relativism. This isn't just opinion. We all don't get to have our own opinion about the value of a dollar bill. We don't all get to have our own opinion about race. Imagine if I say, I have my own opinion about race. Race doesn't exist. It's all in your mind. I, I'm an idiot. Uh, but yet, on the other hand, it's also, it's not, it's not factual matter. Like, it's different from then talking about this coffee cup. So when we start talking about social construction of knowledge, that there's different categories of knowledge. Like, s we might talk about scientific facts and things that we can all agree on, but then there's other things that seem to be knowledge that's, con like, connected to our society and our social standing. Um, and <laughs> there's a lot more detail than that, but I'm just going to toss a baton down the table. Well, I would say that my students are very familiar with, familiar with what you're talking about, because that's what we're talking about in class right now. Um, situations defined as real are real in their consequences, from W.I. Thomas. Um, I don't know if I have more to add. Than I think you covered the social construction of knowledge pretty well. So. Okay. Well, I definitely want to dive in, though, to the sociology world. So I think you know, this idea of the social construction opens us up to that. So uh, maybe, Jeffrey, could you talk about worldview and how worldview um, acts as a filter to our world, which I think does have an impact when we think about this fake news idea, like what I think is important based on my worldview decides if I share this piece of knowledge on Facebook or not. So what is worldview and 
and how does that interact? Well, a worldview is a philosophy or a conception about the world around us. And um, there's a lot that I could talk about with worldview and, and specific to your question, how our ideas um, allow us to filter the world. But I don't want to talk too much because I don't want to eat into the confirmation bias, which I know Professor Lawson Collins is going to talk about. <laughs> um, um, but just a couple of quick things to know is uh, it'll happen a lot on Facebook. We kind of find ourselves in an echo chamber where we surround ourselves with contacts who have similar political and philosophical beliefs as ourselves, and then they share posts, and we're like, yeah, that sounds, that's perfect, I agree with that, and then we share it, and um, our friends probably agree with what we said, and rarely do we have a lot of friends who are on the polar opposite of what we believe. Some of us keep those people on our lists, I guess, but most of the time uh, we tend to weed those people out of our social networks, um, social network sites, so we don't hear those opposing views. We kind of wind ourselves up in an echo chamber where the same idea gets uh, perpetuated ad nauseum, and that's the only thing we ever hear. Um, I do just want to touch on the confirmation bias for just a quick moment, which I know we're going to get into in uh, much uh, more depth later, but it's the idea that we search for ideas that affirm what we already believe. Um, specifically, I want to think about how that relates to what's called the backfire effect in sociology. Uh, this is something that really interesting that happens is if we believe something that is, if I believe something and I make some comment and someone else provides me a fact that proves it wrong, I'm less likely to agree with the fact and I'm actually more likely to dig my heels in and believe even further what I already thought was true, even though I was just presented with a bunch of, a bunch of facts or a bunch of studies that say the opposite. Um, so an example of this could be discussions of global warming. So I had this conversation with a family member not too long ago when I'm talking about global warming and how uh, this is the first uh, February and January and recorded record where there wasn't any snowfall observable in Chicago. I'm like, well, how could we deny global warming? And my family member's like, well, you know, there's just you know, trends and we go through, Earth goes through cycles and we're just in a warm cycle right now. And I'm just like, like trying to provide evidence. Like, well, you know, uh, if we look, if we look at carbon emissions, they're higher than ever. And we know that humans are putting these carbon emissions into the environment. That's higher than ever. Uh, more and more and more. The less snow every year. All these things, the, the polar ice caps are melting. And if we look at pictures from last year and the year before, we can see them getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And the more evidence that I was providing for my point that global warming is a real thing that the scientific community communities in unanimous agreement on is happening, the more my cousin was just absolutely not willing to believe it and saying, oh, well, you know, um, it, we all just find the facts that want to prove ourselves right, which is exactly what happened in that case. Although I don't think my cousin found facts. He found alternative facts, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is also a fun thing to talk about maybe in the Q&A section. Um, but I don't want to talk more about that because I know my colleague is going to talk about confirmation bias. So, Okay. Laura, do you want to add anything? Um, you don't have to. No, okay. We'll okay. We'll get there. Okay. Cool. Can you talk a little bit about how life experience impacts that worldview, Jeffrey, and, and how we build that, build that up, and just interacts with information? If you have more. Well, um, I think life experience really plays into that because it plays on fake news. Oftentimes, plays on people's fears. Um, it, it, if there's a, a worry or something that's going to happen in the world, we focus on that fear and we exaggerate that fear to be a common sort of occurrence. In sociology, we call this the routinization of caricature. We, we be, this fear becomes sensationalized. We take a, a, 
an exaggeration, a worst case scenario, and say, well, that happens all the time. That's how it always is. An example of this would be the 1930s propaganda film about marijuana called Reefer Madness. Um, take one, one little, one person does something bad on drugs, and apparently that's how it always happens. Um, we take the worst case scenario and exaggerate it. Um, to be the most common scenario. I think another example that's really relevant with this is the discussion of trans people in the bathrooms that they use. There's a lot of concern about people going into the wrong restroom and um, trans people assaulting someone else in the bathroom. Uh, there's lots of discussion about this and using the bathroom that matches your gender or your birth certificate and so on. In actuality though, mainstream news have reported zero cases of trans people assaulting anyone in the bathroom. Um, so we have a worst case scenario that hasn't even actually happened and that's being right. portrayed as the common sort of thing that happens all the time. Um, there's a lot of talk about the potential of it happening. It's playing on this fear, but it's not actually based in reality at all. Meanwhile, there are actually countless Republicans who have been caught engaging in illicit sex in the bathrooms. <laughs> um, I, there are Democrats, too, but I, I call on the Republicans because they're the ones who are championing these um, bills and acts that are trying to police who has access to the bathrooms. Can I just throw one thing in there? So um, as you were talking about these stories that come up in the news um, and the, the idea that trans people are going to attack others in the bathroom, even though there haven't been any instances of it, um, when you hear that in the news, even if you're told by someone else or maybe they make a correction the next day saying that, oh, well, actually there haven't been any instances, or you hear from a friend, oh, well, actually that's not true, uh, trans person, there, there are no documented cases of this happening. Even when we're told that it's false, we still tend to hang on to the original belief. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's very difficult to um, get rid of that original belief. Once you've been exposed to it, you tend to hang on to it. And most people tend to still believe it. But even when you say you don't believe it, it still acts as what's called an anchor for your attitude. So you still have it in your head as a potential, as a possibility. Even though you know it's false, it's still there and it's still impacting then your future opinion. Yep, and that, that selection bias that it becomes, it reconfirms itself, mm -hmm. right? So yeah, that's good. Um, just to go back to Jeffrey for one more question and then we will dive more into this psychology for sure. Um, I wanted to ask how uh, fake news is used to maintain power inequalities in society. Uh, in sociology, uh, sociology is fundamentally concerned with power inequalities and power dynamics in society. So fake news is another way that these are perpetuated. Um, I think that one of the major ways this happens is that fake news often serves as a distraction from what might be real news. Uh, so if we look at terrorism, for instance, terrorism is simply defined as the use of violence as a means towards some political end. And if we think of the word terrorist, that Anchor, is that the right word? Um, the anchor that comes to mind for many people is someone from maybe the Arab world. Um, but if we look in this country, if we look in the United States, the group that's most likely to engage in terrorism is, in fact, white men. Um, by and large, that's without question if we count up the number of instances of times that people use violence as a means towards a political end, it's white men who are doing that. But that's not often the image that comes to mind. So we focus on the fake news. It serves as a distraction um, against, against maybe what is the larger threat. Uh, for instance, we don't ever talk about white men becoming radicalized through the internet. We don't talk about um, radicalized fundamentalist Christianity, which uh, the KKK would be would fall into that category. But we don't use that language when talking about the dominant group. 
Another way that fake news serves as a distraction um, is in thinking out about police departments and the ways in which they engage in systemic institutionalized violence against people of color. Um, just as a quick little tidbit here, since 2004, the city of Chicago has paid over half of a billion, that's billion with a B, over half of a billion dollars in police brutality lawsuits since 2004. Over half of a billion dollars. But that's not a news story. We don't talk about... Um, about uh, the systemic violence within the police department. We talk about how, you know, just follow the rules. If a police pulls you over, follow the rules. Blue lives matter. And that serves as a distraction from maybe a larger story that we could be talking about. Finally, the last example that I'd like to share with the ways in which fake news serves as a distraction is this discussion about voter ID laws. Uh, voter ID laws are designed to reduce voter fraud. That's what they say, at least, trying to lower the amount of voter fraud. Um, but actually in the U.S. there's very little voter fraud. Um, voter ID laws actually serve the purpose of making it harder for poor people and people of color to vote. It serves as a form of voter disenfranchisement. Since poor people and people of color are less likely to have ID, then it means that they're less likely to vote. Poor people and people of color are also more likely to vote Democrat, and it's not Democrats who are the people who are passing voter ID laws. Incidentally, Steve Bannon, Tiffany Trump, Jared Kushner, and Sean Spicer were all registered to vote in more than one state. <laughs> Just as a just as a side side note, note yes. <laughs> um, well, I think this is a good point to move into the talking about the psychological factors and how we interact with information. And you know, one of the, my favorite kind of uh, examples, and um, Laura, you can run with this. But if you have two people, let's say we have, you know, Mr. A and Mr. B. If Mr. A hitchhikes all the time, I hitchhike every or I pick up hitchhikers. I pick, pick up hitchhikers every day, and then one day I pick up a hitchhiker, and the hitchhiker robs me. Mr. B never picks up hitchhikers, but one day he's feeling kind of nice, so there's a hitchhiker. I'll pick him up, pick up my one hitchhiker, and that hitchhiker robs me. Mr. A and Mr. B will have quite different views on picking up hitchhikers, right? Mr. A will be like, I pick him up all the time. I randomly got robbed by one hitchhiker, but most hitchhikers are pretty nice guys or ladies. Mr. B's going to think, I'll never pick up hitchhikers again. The one I picked up mugged me right away, right? And that you know gets into that storytelling, anchoring, life experience, um, the, the how we frame those conversations. So I will hand that over to you to run with. Okay, so really one of the first things that I wanted to talk about here is the brain. Um, so we really need to understand that fake news hijacks how our brains are wired. So we have two ways that we process information. We process information centrally and we process information peripherally. Uh, when we talk about central processing, we're really talking about like a conscious, thoughtful, deliberate process. Um, it's something that takes motivation, um, and it's something that takes a lot of effort and attention. Okay, so we've got central processing, which we can certainly engage in. However, the vast majority of our decisions and our interactions and just our moment-to-moment -moment existing we're processing information peripherally. Okay? Now our peripheral processing, it's more unconscious. We're, we're not 100% aware uh, that we're doing it. We're not 100% aware of the biases underneath it. Um, and it's easy and it's automatic. And we can see these two different kinds of processing take place in the brain. We've got much better imaging now so we can see you know, when we're doing one versus the other. Fake news hijacks um, this process because people who put out the fake news and are, you know, waiting for you to click on it, 
they know that most of the time we're not thinking through things. Most of the time we're not uh, looking for a reasoned, rational, logical explanation. Most of the time we're really just on autopilot. We're just kind of sleepwalking through our lives. Hmm. Um, which kind of brings me to, to my next point. And that is, uh, you know, I want everybody to understand, because I think it's a really important point, that we are all cognitive misers. Cognitive misers. I don't know if you guys have ever heard the term miser before. It's probably an older term. But think of like Scrooge. Scrooge was a miser with his money, okay? So we are cognitive misers. That means that we have limited attentional capacity. And you guys, we don't like to expend it. We like to save it. We don't like to give it away. We don't like to use it up because we have a very limited amount of it. So our brains are wired to, to function on autopilot because we just don't have enough capacity to be processing everything. We've got hundreds of pieces of information that are coming at us every minute. You know, from how our clothes feel, to the lights, to the colors, to, you know, the noises around us. And most of that we're filtering out. Um, and the stuff that our brain is processing, most of that processing is going on at more of an unconscious level. It's, it's this peripheral processing. Fake news knows that we are processing mostly peripherally. And that peripheral processing that's, that goes on it does tend to follow these cognitive shortcuts, these thinking shortcuts. And they're shortcuts that we all share, regardless of culture, regardless of where we were raised. We all, as humans, our brains are wired to follow these shortcuts. And again, it's because, you guys, we're cognitively lazy. Okay, We are all cognitive misers. We want to follow the easiest route. And it's so that we can function day to day. So. The, um, the thing that Jeffrey mentioned, the backfire effect, you don't just see that in the United States. You're going to see that in other countries as well. And all of that gets connected, again, to this idea that we are really uh, processing peripherally most of the time. We're processing more in an automatic way instead of in a thoughtful way. Do you want me to go on to the confirmation bias? That'd be great. Okay. Yeah. So there are a number of different shortcuts. Um, and probably the most important one that we can talk about when we're talking about fake news is the confirmation bias. So with the confirmation bias, we seek out information that confirms what we already expect and what we already think we know. And, and you guys, this impacts our attention. It impacts what we pay attention to. It impacts what we notice. In, in a room or in a situation or in a feed, in a news feed, it's going to impact what we notice. Um, and it's going to impact what we store um, in our memory. And it's also going to impact um, what we retrieve from our memory. And there's been a lot of work done on the confirmation bias. It's a very, very powerful shortcut that, again, we all share. Um, and what it does is it serves to confirm our beliefs. Okay, so if we have a belief that, um, you know, pick a stereotype. Um, if we have a belief that all blonde women are unintelligent, okay, so that's our stereotype, that's our belief. We are going to look for instances 
where that has been proven to be true. So that's the first thing, attention, right? The second thing is we store that information that's consistent with our expectations, so we're going to remember that information as well. The, the third thing here is that we tend to twist what we store to fit our expectations. Now this is where it gets maybe a little unexpected. So I'd like you guys to imagine that you are taking two classes, and one is an English class, okay? And one is an organic chemistry class. And in your organic chemistry class, you're sitting next to a blonde woman, and she is doing phenomenally in the class. She is, she's acing everything. She knows the answer right off the bat. She's just amazing with organic chemistry. You then go to your English class, and you're sitting next to a blonde woman who can't spell English. Okay? She just fits the stereotype type perfectly. So when you go and you talk to your friends, you're hanging out with your friends, who are you going to bring up? Who are you going to bring up? The English class blonde or the organic chemistry blonde? Guys, give me an answer. Who are you going to bring up? <laughs> the English one, right? Okay, so we bring her up. The thing that I think is kind of amazing is that what even we take it even further and if you were to ask people later on, what color was that woman's hair who sat next to you in organic chemistry? You know, the smart one, the one who knew all the answers. About 25% of us will switch her hair color to brunette. You guys, we switch the details. Our memory changes to be consistent with our expectations, okay? So again, we've got attention, what we pay attention to, we've got what we store in our memory, and we've also got what we retrieve. And we can change things at any one of those points to make things more consistent with our initial beliefs. And I hope you guys can see how if you apply that to fake news, what you end up with is just a confirmation you know, as you're going through your social media, as you're watching television, it's just a confirmation of everything that you already expected and everything that you already knew. If you hear something positive about a person that you like, a political figure that you like, you're like, see, I always knew that that person was a great person. But if you hear something positive about someone that you hate, who's a politician, you're like, they're liars. That's just rumors. I know that that can't <laughs> be true. Um, <clears throat> so you guys, it, it's, it's not even um, just a matter of the information that we're presented with. It's what we do with the information um, once we take it in. Can I add something real quick in there? Yes. Um, the bit about the organic chemistry <coughs> blonde. Uh, if people do remember that she was blonde, she'll be a credit to all blondes. Right? The person who defies the stereotype, if there's a person who defies the stereotype based off of race, well then you're a credit to the race. You're a credit to the uh, whatever group that you're a part of. Um, so if we, if we do remember you, if you're those 75% that do remember you, um, that, that, that example, it's, well you're the one that goes the against, one. the yes. one that goes against the pattern. So if I do remember you, it's because you're just so exceptional. Yeah, and I, I'll actually follow up on that, because that's an important point that Jeffrey's making. So. You guys, uh, when we have these ideas um, and we have groups of expectations, they're called schemas. Okay, so that's just the name for it. It's a schema. And these schemas exist within our brain. They're interconnected with other, you know, experiences and opinions and ideas, um, memories that we have. 
So if we have this idea, this schema stereotype about blonde women being unintelligent, and we, we meet a blonde woman who's very intelligent, and we correctly remember her hair color, we don't screw with it in our memory, and we're confronted with it, you know, and someone says, hey, well, you say all blonde women are unintelligent. What about that woman in your organic chemistry class? Her hair was blonde. What we do, you know, when we say she's a credit to her, you know, to blonde women, we actually create a little subcategory. So instead of, instead of changing that schema, instead of changing that stereotype, remember, go back to we are all lazy, okay? Our brains are lazy. We want to do the easiest thing. Changing that one schema is going to mean this web of other memories, experiences, things that we've been told, all that has to shift if we change that one schema, that one stereotype. So instead of changing that one stereotype, we just bloop, we add in a little extra subcategory. And we say, well, no, no. You know, all blonde women are unintelligent. Well, except for the exception to the rule, the exception that proves the rule. And then you can still, you can still talk about those people and someone can still point out, hey, what about your friend who's one of those people? No, no, you know, they're in the exception. Mm -hmm. So it allows you to continue to have a lazy brain that doesn't change its underlying schemas and stereotypes. It allows you to maintain. Aaron and Mary, feel free to jump in. If I was just thinking that it seems like this effect may happen to experts too. Um, so it's not, it doesn't just happen to people who don't entirely understand what they're reading or the information that they're mm -hmm. looking for. It also happens to people who are experts in their field where, um, for instance, perhaps the paradigm has been X for 25 years that they've been working in that field. And as the paradigm shifts, they can't, they can't understand the change or they can't accept the change and they want to go on believing the old paradigm, if that makes sense. And, and I think when, for those of us in the classrooms, right, and I see it in the library all the time, those moments when someone really does have a big change in the schema, like I've now learned something that's really made me rethink my worldview, which happens. I mean, it's not like it's impossible to happen, it happens. Those are really super powerful learning moments and for those of us that teach, when you see that in the classroom, that's the kind of stuff that you're after. But I, mean, I think the reality is most of our beliefs are pretty established early and it's difficult to change them and then we find ways to work to not change them, like you said. C can you, Laura, talk a little bit, I think I don't wanna miss the idea also of um, emotions and feelings. I think that's really important. We underestimate it, like we think that we're these logic computer machines and we really aren't. So how does that work with information? Yeah, so when we're talking about emotion, emotion very much impacts how we process information. So if you remember, I, I spoke about central processing and peripheral processing. In order for us to really think centrally, we need to be calm, okay? We need, in order to be rational, reasonable, logical, we need to be calm. Um, when our, when we get stressed out, when we get emotional, when we feel threatened, there is a small part of the brain called the amygdala. It's a little almond-shaped structure in our brain. And it signals, it, it gets uh, stimulated when we feel threatened. Okay, so that fight or flight response that we've all experienced before when we feel threatened and our heart races and our 
blood pressure goes up, we, f we might feel a little shaky. When that happens, you can't think fully rationally, okay? That logic goes out the window. You're now totally in peripheral processing. I don't know if you guys have ever been pulled over by a police officer, um, but you know, I know I've had this experience, I know others who have had the experience where the police officer pulls you over, your body goes into that fight or flight, you're certainly not gonna run, okay? You're not gonna fight, I hope. Um, so you roll down that window and you know, the police officer says, you know, what, what are you doing? Why, why did you skip that s stop sign? And you want to be able to explain and you want to be a, like reasoned and calm and, and all that comes out is maybe a little bit of gibberish, you know, and, and you're not really speaking fluently and you're not giving a full reasoned explanation. And that's because when we are under stress, we don't, our central processing is much, much more difficult to access. So when you get into an argument with another person, like a cousin, for instance, <laughs> um, you know, around a holiday table or something, and that conversation gets heated, um, there are points that you forget to make. You know, there are, there are things that you forget to remind that other person of. Um, you're just not able to reason as effectively. And, you know, as, as several of our panelists have, have talked about, fake news is designed to elicit strong emotion. So if we feel a strong emotion, especially if it's threat, we tend to shut down our central processing. We're not gonna think about it thoroughly. We're not going to check it. We're just going to have a reaction. We're going to have this amygdala-driven, peripheral reaction against it or for it. Um, that, again, is not really well-reasoned out. So, yeah, absolutely, emotion very much impacts it. I'll, one more thing about yeah, yeah. emotion mm -hmm. that I wanted to say is that um, you know, another thing that, I, that we haven't talked about yet is that, again, both being cognitive misers, but we are also a species that likes to think well of ourselves, okay? The, the majority of all of us think that we are in the right. Unless you've got some, some depression, um, we like to think of ourselves as good people, we like to think of ourselves as being more trustworthy than average, more moral than average, and we're right. I mean, obviously, we're right, <laughs> okay? So when we have a news story that contradicts our opinion, well, we know we're right. We know we're trustworthy. We know that you know, we are morally superior to whatever the point of view is that we're reading, and that plays even more into that threat. So when we experience that threat to our own stance, to our own morality, our own rightness, it tends to kick on that irrational, more emotional system. Yeah. Yep. Just want to add anything? Well, let's see, um, with the time we have left, if we can just bring some of these ideas back home together, some final points, and, and think about fake news. I, I do worry with some of the things that are out there that, that we're uh, – when we engage those emotions and the news debate becomes about winning, not about getting to the truth, that the thing that suffers is kind of the, the intellectual 
scholarly stance that we take. And those of us in higher ed really worry about this, right? Like that's why we research is to build solid knowledge. And maybe we can change minds. Maybe some things we're going to grow and evolve over time. But that at least we have that justif justification, right? And I wanted to ask Jeffrey to start us. So talk a little bit about the connection with fake news and anti-intellectualism and um, that mo movement that concerns us so much. Well, anti-intellectualism is the distrust of science and reasoning, going back to what Mary discussed earlier with positivism and the scientific approach. Uh, anti-intellectualism is a mistrust of that approach. Uh, so just to keep it uh, real simple here, because I know we're running out of time so, uh, to be able to finish up, um, it's not that the information isn't out there. You know, To go back to the global warming example or the global climate change example, it's not that the information isn't out there. The information is out there. The scientific community is in almost complete unanimous agreement about the fact that the global temperature is changing and th we're the cause of it. Um, the scientific community pretty much agrees on that. So the information is out there. Um, it's not that we don't have access to the information. It's that we're kind of refusing it. Um, so Shauna Thelman, um, in a study of Lacan, has this wonderful quote that I just love, and that's that ignorance is not a passive state of not knowing. Rather, it's an active state of refusing information. It's not that the information isn't out there. It's that we're refusing to take it um, through the ways in which um, uh, my colleagues discussed, specifically with the way that our brain works and uh, the ways that we think about how knowledge is constructed anyway. So. Yeah, that's great. I, I mean, I think part of the, the challenge with fake news is that we always approach it with this true-false thing. So I'm going to turn to Aaron on this one. Um, I mean, I think with scientific knowledge too, right? But all knowledge isn't just so much that one thing is true and one thing is false, but there's a spectrum there that we need to deal with. And can you help us understand oh. some of that? Absolutely. So just even thinking about that example of climate change, like we tend to think like, if you think of like truth, uh, things are like true and false, like either climate change is true or climate change is false. You're like, well, it's colder where I was last week, so therefore climate change is false. Or it's really easy to like latch onto one thing because we think we have to have this I idea of like absolute certainty. We have to have 100% perfect knowledge. Like you'll see this in arguments about evolution. Like, oh, evolution is false because we don't have a complete 100% pure explanation of evolution. But instead of instead of holding on to that, like I, I try to push my students to sort of think about like uh, knowledge not in terms of like true and false or truth and falsity, but rather just you might think of it as like a percentage belief. You might think of like, uh, oh, I have a 99% belief that uh, climate change. Yeah, like we don't have a perfect explanation. It's not 100%. It's not exhaustive. But boy, if I was making a bet, I take a bet every time on a 99%. Uh, bet that, that, that I'm right. And you're like, ooh, wow, gee, is it possible we didn't land on the moon? The moon landings were fake? Yeah, it's possible. Human beings have, have faked stuff like that. I, I wasn't there. I don't know that. But boy, I have a large mountain of evidence that the moon landings occurred. And I mean, this kind of idea works well for like conspiracy theories. It also works well on like testing fake news. You're like, boy, uh, that news story, that seems like that's yeah, probably false. I mean, it could be true, right? I, it could really will. They, they might will. Hillary Clinton is running a sex slavery ring out of a out of a punk rock pizza house in D.C. Okay, 1% chance of being true. Unlikely, but it's possible. <laughs> so, I mean, you don't actually have to say it's true or false. Rather, it's just like, is it more likely to be true or more likely to be false? And I think... This also gets out of the sort of like stuckness we get when we, th we tend to think like something has to be true. Well, it's not that, so then it's this. And then it, it gets us into the sort of middle ground. But that's more complicated because the middle ground is really, really hard. It forces us to think for ourselves. And it, yeah, go ahead, Mary. It also seems to me like in science, kind of what um, Dr. Smith was just talking about, 
we, we continue to test our beliefs um, and to collect evidence that either supports or rejects them. And it's not so much that we are getting closer to the truth or that we will ever land directly on it. It's hopefully more like we're getting further away from what is definitely false, if, if that makes sense. Um, and so, so we continue to, to test our theories, um, those that are testable, because we want to get further away from the things that we were wrong about, not because we think that at some point we will land directly on the truth and we'll be able to stay there forever. I, I think a, a great analogy that I've heard, so I see your Green Bay hat, which I'm sorry that you're wearing that, but um, <laughs> if we had to ask in here, how many people think the Bears are gonna win the Super Bowl next year? With a show of hands, right? Yeah, good, <laughs> strong fans. I mean, the odds are not good for the Bears, right? But if we just drew out of the 32 teams right in the NFL, if I just drew out a name, I could draw out the Bears. But what experts could do, the people that really know football, could probably narrow it down to the five or six teams that have the best odds, and they're pretty right. Like, you're probably within the odds where the Bears win, no, and you could draw out those teams. Maybe you can't guess the exact team that will win the Super Bowl next year, but if you gave me the top eight, Right? You probably, a lot of people, yet enough people are probably pretty much in the ballgame. That's, we don't like to think of knowledge as that. Like, we want to think of knowledge as a fact and that it's solid and that we stand upon it and that we always know it. But a lot of the things we work in have a, a mostly true component and a lot of things that aren't true. But that mostly true isn't absolutely true. And there's a difference there, right? There's some gradients, and our minds have trouble holding on to that because I think, like you said, we're misers. We want the easy answer. It's like, what's on the test? Tell me what's on the test. And I got it, right? Yeah. So any, any other comments? On I'd also just say that's a part of a justified true belief, right? That we have this, like, we have a justification, and it's true, and it's a belief that we can change that, and it gets us outside of the sort of binaries. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Just one thing. I w and just, w just to get, I know that none of us are, like, the, the technology experts, but I think this is part of it. The, the Aaron brought up a point when we were prepping for this about... Um, handing over our thinking skills to algorithms, and maybe you could talk a little bit about Ar to Aaron, or Aaron what you um, mean by that and help us see that. Well, one of the things that we have is just like, it used to be really, or I won't say it used to be, like there was like this like glory days of like, oh, when we could trust newspapers in the evening news, and it was just perfect, because obviously they were, they had biases and they were reporting certain things. But like, if you think like 10 years ago, it was really easy, like, oh, I could point to the inquirer and say, oh, that's fake news. And my friend's telling me the stuff that sounds like BS, I'll call BS on that. And then, but this other stuff that seems true, yeah, it's probably true. And like this newspaper, I could trust it. And like, but all of a sudden we're all inundated with all of these stories that seem to be true. And the way, our, you know, just like for all the reasons we've talked about, it's just like, it's really hard to distinguish that. And one of the problems that we have is that we're, our brains are lazy. We, we don't want to have to apply critical thinking skills to every single news story that's coming along. So then all of a sudden, like, I mean, for me, like, became apparent to me like uh, maybe about a year ago when I started seeing all these fake news stories, but they were just like fake news stories that were sort of aimed for me, like on my Facebook feed. Like I used to trust my seven or eight friends from grad school who post way too much on, on Facebook, but they seem to have like good news stories and things I could trust. And all of a sudden I have to think more critically about it, but I don't. And 
the problem that I have is that like I want to trust what's coming through my feed, but no one is trusting what their feed is. And then what we're really doing is just uh, talking about like outsourcing our critical thinking skills to like a like an algorithm of like you know determined like what I should believe or not. And that's really hard because on one hand it would be really great if I had a truth filter that I could put in and just so I could get the stuff that's true. But the problem is some human is con you know deciding what constitutes a truth filter, and then that's an algorithm that someone else is making. And then do I trust that? And how do I know that? And oh my God, I can't trust anything and my head explodes. And then it's just easy to run away and not do anything. And this is where, as a philosophy professor, I'd say this is where it's really, really hard work. It's not easy. If you want to like drag yourself out of the philosophical cave that you know, Plato talked about, well, you have to think about it. You have to put some real work and effort into it. And it's really exhausting. It's hard, because who wants to actually have to put in the effort to research stuff? So then do you just accept ignorance and just like not learn anything? No, of course not. You have to get out there. You have to trust stuff. You have to read and educate yourself. And then the problem is, is you may never actually know what's true or not. You can have a better guess, but frankly, that's that's probably better than a lot of people. And I'm I wish I could s hand you, like you know, truth. Here's truth, and you could have it, but you can't. You're just stuck in that middle ground. Yeah, yeah. I like I like what Dr. Smith just said. That the suggestion that when you hand your your um, kind of source of information off to an algorithm that what you're really doing is you're, you're trusting the person who wrote that algorithm or who, who made that up, and now he or she is your source of knowledge. It's not that that information is automatically reliable, but the person who wrote the alg algorithm is, is giving you that information, and, and you're just sort of trusting him or her. Yeah, okay. To keep going with the, the uh, are there other points on how we can avoid fake news you guys want to throw in? Um, I can talk just really briefly. I do a, a project with um, my critical thinking students every semester where they analyze the news. And uh, generally speaking, I don't want them to just read it and report to me on what they're reading. I want them to use their critical reasoning skills to examine what they're being told and who's saying it and what the reason for saying it might be and to look at the language being used to describe or, or define a, a problem or a story and to critically analyze that. Is it, is it emotional? Is it trying to convince you of something? Or is it just the facts? Um, and, and recognizing those places and those ways in which even the mainstream news has kind of um, used language to change our beliefs rather than form our beliefs is, I think, a, a really useful tool regardless of who you are. Um, and so, so students who, who do this project tend to come away with an understanding that there are relatively reliable sources of the news out there. They just have to always be critically engaged. They have to never watch the news with their lazy brain on, ever, <laughs> right. right, ever. And I will just add to that, I think that being aware that we are all cognitively lazy, I think is important because we all like to think that, again, we're better than the average person and we're smarter than the average person. And well, other people might be cognitively lazy, but I, I am not cognitively lazy. I am always thinking. And that's something that you really need to get rid of because none of us, none of us are rationally, logically thinking all the time we would not be able to function, by the way, if we were. So we are all pre-wired to be lazy most of the time. 
Um, so if you really care about you know, analyzing the news, the first step is just awareness that most of the time we're using this peripheral type of thinking. So being aware of your biases, being aware of what you are looking to confirm, um, those are, are powerful, powerful tools. One more tool that I'll mention is um, if you come across a story that you know is in your feed, is you know from your friends, and um, you know they say it's true, what I'd like you to do is think about if it was about the opposite side, would you still accept it and have the same thoughts about it um, that you do as it being from your side? Okay, so. Um, if you are a big fan of Trump or you're a big fan of Clinton, whichever side you know you're on, if you get uh, a news article that's that's really um, talking about all the wonderful things about your side, would you feel the same way? Would you look at and analyze and think about that article the same way if it was saying the same thing but about the opposite side? So it's it's called playing devil's advocate, um, or it's also called considering the opposite. Um, and that can also help you to kind of maybe uh, jump past or get around a little bit that confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. I'm going to throw one last thing. I know I said that already, but one last thing out there that I just found, um, found out about recently. If you're really wanting to engage with the other side and, and try to break down some of your biases and stereotypes about the other side, there's a new app and site. It's a service called Hi from the Other Side that's out there. I don't know if anybody's heard of it, but basically you give them your email and, and geographic location and they match you with someone with the exact opposing views. And then you have a face-to-face -face meeting to talk about things civilly because on Facebook or wherever, you know, whatever social media we're on, it's very easy to be highly critical and not thinking when you're talking to someone through keyboard. It's much more difficult to do that face-to-face -face and call someone you know, a jerk face-to-face. -face. Um, and you have to uh, really be thinking in a different way when you're interacting with someone face-to-face. -face. So I'd, I'd recommend that for anybody who um, is interested in, mm -hmm. in really uh, trying to get beyond their, their stereotypes and schemas about people who have totally different opinions from them. I'd also like to add, uh, you said consider the opposite. I like consider the source. Before you share something, consider the source. Uh, who owns that article? Who owns the media that you're sharing? And how do they benefit from that story existing the way that it's being told? And also, I know it's maybe a little bit remedial and juvenile, but I like Snopes. I like Snopes because they've got... Uh, th it's not true-false. There's mostly true, mostly false, and true and false. So uh, there's lots of ways to fact-check before you perpetuate the misinformation. Yeah. And just to pick up on that, I think we also have a collective responsibility. I mean, because it's really easy to say, like, well, I won't pass on any bad information, but the reality is you are going to pass on information. So you also have a responsibility to accept the criticism from your friends when they point out that you've passed on bad information. But when you see other people don't passing on bad information, don't shy away from the potential conflict. Be, you know, point out, like, oh, that is bad information. And we all have a collective responsibility because, frankly, if no one 
cares about this, then we're all going to be like, oh, fake news. It's overwhelming. But if we all stop, like, work to stop consuming it, then we will stop getting as much fake news. But if you're concerned about this problem, then work on yourself. That's the beginning point. And don't just be like, oh, it's not me. I won't do anything. It's also, it's like, it's, it's sort of a common resource. And we need to take care of it and cultivate it. I'll okay. get off my soapbox. Yeah, that's good. I, I think um, we're at a good point for questions. Are there questions from audience? Yes, go ahead. Question: What are good, trustworthy publications? And um, can I can I chime in as a librarian sure. first? Yeah. I mean, I also think reading lots of different <laughs> stuff is good. Like forcing yourself to read multiple sides. Because there's a difference between fake news that's just made up and also news Bias. that's through a political filter, like that's purposely biased, right? So on the right, you could have The Nation, which is a very liberal kind of publication, and on the left, you could have The National Review. And if, you're, if you use Facebook, you can follow both of them, right? And they will cover the same story in very different ways, and that gives you the, perspe the perspective of both. And both have a level of credibility where they, they're honest on where they're coming from. This is what we stand for, and it's out there, right? So. <laughs> they're not aiming for objectivity. And so I think there's a, a point with that. So, and I'll let others jump in on it. My suggestion was just going to be that usually when I encourage my students to do this, they follow both an international source and a local uh, or national <coughs> source. And that uh, what they tend to, to see is the international <coughs> source, I won't say better, um, they, they, it's different. It's, it's presented differently. The, the style is different. The, the authorship is different. And they learn different things from those different sources. Um, and, and that they find both uh, to be valuable in the end. I mean, if you just want, if you're looking for like, I, I just want a couple recommendations, <coughs> like the three that I would just throw off the top of my head are like the BBC, if you want an international one, if you want a, a US one, like check out the New York Times, yeah. and then also like the Wall Street Journal, and that kind of, you know, those are good ones. Uh, and then there's a lot more nuance, and you can go from there, but if you're like, if you're like, okay, I want to like get my news from three places, you'd, you, you could be more informed than those three, but that's a really good, you know, set. set. Yeah. I think another way is to know which ones to avoid. So if you if you pick up like addicting info, for instance, one way that you can always tell if it's uh, a really bad uh, source is the pictures of the politicians that they use. If they're trying to talk bad about Donald Trump, if it's fake news, they're going to find the worst possible picture of Donald Trump to put on there, or the worst possible picture of whoever it is. And it's like, if that's the picture that they chose, then it's probably not the best source to go with. Yeah, and I, I would also add in that um, if they if it really feels emotional, um, that's usually a bad source. So, um, you know, I think that not just even the fake news, but the biased news is really aiming to get you to feel an emotion, a strong emotion. And I don't think the mainstream um, media that's trying to be unbiased is trying to elicit a strong emotion. They're trying to be more objective. I'm not saying they are completely objective, but they're aiming for that. So the emotional quality should feel different. Yeah, good question. Other questions? <laughs> I know to wait, because there may be a All right, we're almost to time anyway. So how about a round of applause for our panel members? Thank you all for doing this. Thank you.
And thank you all for coming. Have a good day. I think this is an important topic, and it's difficult. It's difficult, so I'm glad we had this conversation. Thank you all.